Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joining today, she's a licensed professional counselor. It's Becca Ferguson. How are you doing today, Becca? I'm good. How are you? Doing so good. We are so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what did you like doing growing up? Yeah, so I am a Yankee that was raised in the South. So um, I'm actually, my whole family, extended family, everybody is from Buffalo, New York, but I was raised in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Um, So way, way South, South Arkansas. Um, It's, if you have never heard of Arkadelphia, it's an hour away from Little Rock and an hour away from Texarkana. If you drive by, (laughs) then you miss it. Like you, you do. It's just a small little town. Um, but it's the home of two colleges. So I was, uh, raised in Arkadelphia and, um, as I, you know, grew up, I'm now living in Northwest Arkansas. And so that's, uh, where I practice and I have my own therapy practice up here. And so that's kind of where I'm at. Living in Arkadelphia, if I said it right. Yes. What are they known for? Oh Lord. Okay. Well, what, um, what level do you want over here? Because I mean, like Arkadelphia is just a whole story in and of itself. Um, Arkadelphia is an interesting little town. The thing about South Arkansas and, um, Northwest Arkansas is it's kind of like two separate states. And I say that a lot. I joke about it because South Arkansas kind of has its own little, uh, own little area and then northwest arkansas we have all of the stuff that we need up here and we just don't go anywhere um but growing up in arkadelphia it's um a small town of less than ten thousand people i mean it has henderson state university and washita baptist university so it's known for that it's a college town it's we call it the suitcase town so it's you know where college students will go there take their classes during the week pack up their suitcase and go home and so um, it's also the home of 36 churches. Um, so with a population of less than 10,000 people, you've got every single person that is trying to go to church and then trying to get you to come to their church. And so, um, it's a very conservative driven church town, I guess is the best way to describe it. Was there anything that you enjoyed doing growing up? Was there any activities, something that really helped you learn more about what you like to do? Oh, Lord, have mercy. Um, I'm, I feel like I'm going to say that a lot. Your questions are going <laughs> to are, are really going to get me. Um, and for th- those of y'all that are listening, it's it's seven o'clock my time. So my brain is already <laughs> shut down like 45 minutes ago, but we're we're cooking through this. Um, but no, I guess growing up, I really didn't have like much of a choice, um, on what I wanted to do. So my, um, dad, the reason why we moved from, um, New York to Arkansas is because my dad was an engineer. And so he decided that he wanted to create his own life and he didn't want to be like constantly having to deal with family telling him what to do and how to raise us and all that kind of fun stuff. And so when um, we moved to Arkadelphia, I was a year old. My sister is three years older than me. So she was almost four at the time that we moved. And so it's a very, it was, it was a very like rough transition because Arkansas was never in any of our blood, like at all. <laughs> Um, and so we came down here with snow shovels and people are like, what in the hell are you doing with that? Like, you're not going to need that. Right. Um, but it, it was an interesting transition. And when I was growing up, 
my dad, um, which we also joke around this, changes career every five years, like literally like five years on the dot, he wants a new career. And so after a couple of years of being an engineer, he decided it was a really stressful environment. He didn't like it. My dad also does not appreciate people telling him what to do. Um, and so he couldn't, he wanted to be his own boss. And so he ended up leaving the engineering job. And this is the 90s before Facebook, social media, cell phones, all that kind of stuff. My father joined a pyramid scheme. Okay. (laughs) And so I want you to imagine being in a town of less than 10,000 people with two colleges um, of broke students. And then my dad doing a pyramid scheme where he's like literally putting flyers under windshield wipers in the Walmart parking lot. But, you know, they sold him and he was selling vitamins. I also remember... Um, I don't remember what the company of the name was. I'm not about to throw them under the bus if I do remember it because God bless their soul if they're still alive. But my, um, I remember them selling like vitamins and supplements. I remember there being like porn magazines around the house because like some of them were like male enhancement vitamins. And so I remember him like looking through ads to figure out ways to sell stuff. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) that's just weird. Okay. I was like so many boobs. Um, But um, and I remember my mom and dad, like always fighting about money and things of that nature. But after a little bit of that, my dad decided that Arkadelphia was not the best market to become a millionaire. And so he ended up moving to Dallas, Texas and stay in trying to start his millionaire empire in Dallas, Texas. Well, my mom's and I, and my sister stayed in Arkadelphia And after about six months of that, my mom was like, you're coming home. And then there goes the millionaire empire that my dad was promised. And he ended up working for a bicycle shop. And so I remember growing up um, a lot of like going back and forth between the bicycle shop with my dad. My mom was an accountant. And so we did a lot of stuff like with her working from home. Um, And then eventually my dad started his own business and did endurance sporting events. And so we um, owned a business that put on triathlons, duathlons, mountain bike races, aqua bikes, all this endurance sports. And here we are like the biggest fat asses in (laughs) all of Arkansas putting on these endurance sporting events. It's like, we're not in shape at all. We do not practice what we preach at all. Um, So my life pretty much consisted of working for my dad in the business that he operated. And um, I was quote unquote, Vanna white. Um, when I was handing out the medals and the t-shirts and all these <laughs> things to all the riders, I got very familiar with old men, old sweaty men and speedos. That was like, you know, a big part of my childhood. And, um, my dad also brought in an organization called teen challenge of Arkansas, which is like a um, rehabilitation program, for um, men that were seeking, you know, help after drug addiction. And so basically I was raised, this is crazy. Okay. I'm throwing that out there and I use the word crazy in a fun way. Um, But I was raised 
by drug addicts that <laughs> were in this teen challenge program, not my mom and dad. Um, but like, I would learn all these weird things from these guys when we would go to these events. And then it's like my dad and my mom were just always busy, heads down, business, business, business. My sister was very straight and narrow, just like big rule follower. And then I'm just like me, happy go lucky kid. There's not a lot of stuff that really could go wrong. I'm not seeing anything besides just like what's in front of me. Mm. Um, And I loved exploring. Oh my gosh. I just loved exploring brand new things. and I loved getting into trouble. That was basically what defined me. So, yeah. When you mean getting in trouble, what kind of trouble were you getting into? Oh, well, now you want to get into it. I see how it is. Um, (laughs) Actually, honestly, like getting into trouble, probably not the definition of a lot of troublemakers trouble. Um, I just really liked to explore things. And so a lot of the trouble that I would get myself into was seeing how far I could push something until it was broken, basically. Okay. And so it's like, someone would say, hey, that stove is hot. Don't put your hand on it. And I would be like, oh, I'm going to go put my hand on it real quick. That sounds fun. And then I'd be like, ah, I burnt my hand. And then they would just like, you know, whatever. So a lot of growing up and getting into trouble was just testing the limits with literally every single person that I knew. I wanted to know what all I could get away with. And then, um, and that kind of bit me in the ass as I grew older. <laughs> Do you feel that that side of you is still there today? Kind of like in a playful way, you kind of pushing yourself to the limits, but from a career path to see what can I do or how far I can go and not like a, in like that troublemaker mindset. Yeah, yes and no. I think, and you know, my my background, it's like so wide and everything that I've gone through, you know, I, I had also, there was these happy moments in my life and there were moments where I did have control and I was pushing the limits and I was testing things per se. But then there was a lot of moments in my life where I didn't have control. And that's where a lot of the trauma in my life happened. And a lot of the challenges that, you know, you talk a lot about on your podcast. And so now I think a lot of the pushing things that I do is more of a result of like a trauma response, Mm -hmm. because I, I get to this like, um, place where it's like survival mode. I have a lot of money trauma. (laughs) And so a lot of it is like, oh my gosh, I got to do this so I can make money. And then I end up like investing money and investing money and investing money. And then I'm like, I'm still poor. And it's like, well, (laughs) because you keep spending money to make money. Um, and it's, it's like, I'm constantly pushing myself to do all these unattainable goals. So that way I'm surviving, but really I'm just kind of burying myself deeper sometimes. And so I've really got to ground myself a lot of, a a lot of the time. So I think my pushing looks a little bit different than when I was (laughs) younger. I think when I was younger, it was more playful. Now I'm like, I've got to survive or I'm never going to make it. Um, And so I think, I think that's kind of what it looks like. 
Well, you talk about money trauma and I just had that conversation. I've had that conversation with my family so many times because I grew up with two different lifestyles where, cause my parents were divorced where my dad was almost kind of surviving paycheck by paycheck. And my mom, we, her and I were just talking and she's like, you guys didn't see what you were struggling. We were struggling, even though we were, they didn't showcase mm-hmm. it. But to me, it's like, okay, we had the money, but I always only remember the struggling parts and that plays an effect in my life because I'm always worrying about, oh, I can't spend this, but I have the money. And then they always say, you don't get the money when you die. Mm -hmm. Like you might as well just spend it. If you need it, go out and get it. But that money trauma is always in my mind and it's always going to be a part of me until I feel comfortable. And I think- it's going to take a long time before that. So like money trauma, like you had your version of it and my version, it's similar in a way because we're both having that mindset of, are we ever going to make it? Or are we ever going to get out of it? But yeah. we, we get to that next day. We're like, oh no, next <laughs> month. Oh no. Well, here comes the bills, things like that. Fair. I think a lot of, you know, the money trauma and things that I went through when I was younger. Now having my dad own his own business we developed that multi-sport business in 1997. And then um, he retired from that business and started a new career when he was 57. So that was um, in 2019 was the last year. So um, a little over 20 years, um, we were, we were making it. And um, I, I know that during that time, my dad had done the same thing where he had invested a lot Mm -hmm. of money into different things. And so during the course of that multi-sport business, you know, we had events in Arkadelphia and then all of a sudden we were going to different parts of Arkansas and then we were starting a timing company and then we bought a company out of Texas. And so, um, from the time that we started the business until the business ended. So I'm thinking of like age wise, I was like five or six when we started the business and then the business ended, you know, gosh, it doesn't seem like it was just four years ago, but it was, I guess, four years ago. And so, um, you know, when I was like 25, 24, 25, when it ended. And um, I just, I think during that time, you know, age six to age 24, obviously there was a big chunk of that life or big chunk of that time where I was very self-absorbed because I was a child and a teenager. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't really notice a lot of the money stuff that was going on. I I remember, and I was, it's funny, I was talking about this with my mother-in-law yesterday. I remembered this one time where my parents were fighting in their bedroom while they were making the bed about money. And I just remember hearing it and I emptied out my piggy bank and put it all in a Ziploc bag and counted all the money and put a little note in there of how much money was in the Ziploc bag. And then I remember like knocking on my parents' door and being like, here, will this fix it? And, um, and I remember my dad being like, shit, she heard us, you know, like, you know, it's like, well, you never want your kids to know that you're struggling. Right. And you always want your kids to have everything that they can have. And I, I think there was parts in my childhood where it's like, we did have money and we were able to do stuff. But then there were other times where it's like, mom would say, we're going to cut the cable. And it's like, 
why? And it's like, well, we don't need it. And it's like, but we have shows that we watch. And so it's like, she would justify us cutting the cable. So we wouldn't, we couldn't be able to watch the things that we want to watch. But then it would be, we can buy the episode on iTunes later. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And so it's like, um, I just remember like watching Monk and Psych at 5 a.m. the next day after it downloaded on iTunes. And so it's like, I, I remember little things like that. And and it's funny because my mom, um, a couple months ago, um, calls me and, you know, I talk to her on the phone quite often. <laughs> and she says, um, she's complaining because she, she still works from home. She's still an accountant. And um, she's complaining. She's like, oh, my internet is so damn slow. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. It, why is your internet so slow? And she goes, well, I turned down the speed. And I was like, why? <laughs> and she said, because I didn't want to pay for it. And I was like, you work from home. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, but it wasn't worth paying for it. I'm like, so you're just going to sit here and complain on the phone with me about how your internet speed is dumb. I'm like, I'm not dealing with that shit. I'm like, go upgrade your internet. Stop <laughs> complaining. And so there's there was little things like that. And I and I still have some of those concepts. Like I can go buy, I can justify buying myself fast food, but I can't justify buying myself a damn bra. Like, you know, it's like little <laughs> things like that, you know? I mean, it, it's been taking me, I think it's been two months that I've been telling my husband that I need to buy new bras. And he's like, just go buy a bra. And I'm like, I'm not going to spend $42 on that, but we'll door dash two pizzas for $75 because <laughs> why the hell not? So yeah, it's just, a, it's, it's difficult <laughs> to even decipher any sort of money trauma at all. So yeah. With the career that you are now as a therapist, licensed professional counselor, was that always the game plan for you? Was that always the path you wanted to take? Oh, no. You just unraveled the whole entire story with that question, <laughs> just to let you know. Um, no, it was not. So you remember a couple minutes ago when I told you that Arkadelphia is a town of less than 10,000 people with over mm-hmm. 36 churches? You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I I bet you can guess what I did in my spare time. And that was go to church, right? Um, I really didn't have a choice in that because church was just what you did. Mm -hmm. And my mom was raised Catholic. Uh, My dad was raised Methodist. And Catholic is not really booming down in Arkansas. I I don't know if you know about the South and the Catholic churches. They don't really do well down here. Okay. Um, so my, um, my mom decided that we were going to be Methodists whenever we were being raised and it it just was a little bit easier that way. So we had a really good Methodist church in town. Um, and I say good loosely, um, because obviously that's where a lot of my trauma happened. Um, but as far as I was concerned, from literally, and I can remember being in third grade, sitting at the lunch table with my friends, and we're all, we were talking about like school and college. And I remember saying, I'm going to have to go to school for 10 years after I graduate high school because I'm going to go to seminary and become an ordained Methodist preacher. What third grader says that <laughs> shit? Like nobody says that. 
But in my mind, it it was the perfect career for me because I loved going to church and I loved everything about the community that it was in. And plus Methodist preachers get a parsonage and all their bills are paid and their mortgage is paid. So in my mind, it made even more yeah. sense when it came to the money trauma because I was like, hell's bells, I'm going to get a house out of this shit. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> um, I didn't cuss back then. So, but, you know, it's a... So I think being a therapist, no, it was never in the plan. Actually, um, being a, a pastor was in the plan. Being a Methodist pastor was was the plan all along um, until that changed in 2017 is when I decided to go to school to become a therapist. You talked about how that question I asked unraveled. Was there a specific moment that the trauma hit hard for you that really played an effect in your life? Yeah. So, um, this is, this is one of those stories that it's, it's difficult to tell, but it's good to tell at the same time. And actually I guessed it on a podcast, um, a couple of weeks ago that released it, that released it. Wow. That was not a word um, <laughs> <laughs> that released last week. And um, I I shared the story of everything that happened when I was in the church. But um, growing up in that church, everything was unicorns and rainbows, pretty much. Until when I got into children's ministry, um, you know, there was just the very traditional, like, hymns, kids, church, mm-hmm. choir type kind of thing. I didn't really like that. I was like this is boring and it's too stressful. I don't really want to do this anymore. My mom just was like, if you don't want to do it, you don't got to do it. And we didn't. And then we got a new children's minister and she was all that bag of chips and box of ho-hos and she loved veggie tales. And we were just like, yeah, we love children's ministry again. And when we had fun vacation Bible school and it was growing, growing, growing and everything was great. Um, But then after you were done with children's ministry, you finished that at the end of fifth grade. And then our church had a weird break. Like sixth graders weren't in youth group yet, but um, in seventh grade, you could join youth group. And so it's basically in sixth grade, you were like on a deserted island. Like you just didn't really get to like do anything except for just go to church. And so, um, during the, during my sixth grade year, I just focused on like school and my friendships and everything. And then the summer before my seventh grade year, that's when everything kind of went to shit. And, um, we had a new youth minister that joined our church, like two years prior to that, when I was in fifth grade and he was really shaking things up in our church. And, um, he, I mean, he was doing some good things. We had a lot of, um, a lot of new youth that were coming. I mean, he was a kid, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a grown man with a kid's mind. And so like he could talk about poop and everything. (laughs) Everyone just loved him. And so um, the only people that didn't love him were the adults. And (laughs) that's because he was a kid. Um, But we, when I was growing up um, and I started youth group, I got really infatuated with him mostly because um, he was the first one to introduce me to God in this really friendly way um, versus like 
God up here, obey me or I shall smite you. It was like, God down here. Hey, I'm your dad. And this is really cool. And I have guitars and a band and I'm going to play worship music. That's going to make cry. And so it was like, he introduced me to this whole new form of God. But with that came this whole new form of guilt. And then um, my family, like I said, they were part of the people that did not like him. And so um, that he was doing a lot of really shady stuff in the background. He was stealing money from the church, um, writing off expenses. I mean, doing some really, really crappy stuff. And so my mom being the accountant at the church obviously knew all this stuff and was trying to, you know, get him fired for it. But he had some really bad anger problems and everyone was pretty much scared of him. And he used those anger problems to kind of convince people to get on his side. Um, And that was complicated, super complicated. And so um, before my seventh grade year, he issued me an ultimatum at one of the first youth events that I went to. And it was that I had to choose between him and the church or my family. And if I didn't choose him and the church, then I was most likely going to go to hell. And so that's where a lot of my trauma happened. And my dedication to the church was at an all time high after that, because I, I obviously chose him. I mean, a 13 year old me was just like, I don't want to go to hell. Like death seems impending, you know? And so it destroyed the relationship that I had with my parents And, um, really I just was so infatuated with him. I thought that he was Jesus and that he walked on water and that was my life for all of high school and middle school and high school. And then part of college until I left the church in, um, 2018. So, um, so pretty recent at that at that time and it it was difficult for sure would this church group be considered comparing it to like being in a cult would you say kind of where they (laughs) isolate you away did your family ever try to get you out of it throughout the time you were still part of it I mean probably cult is saying in a bad way but usually a lot of times you hear stories with churches and groups and kind of isolated between you and your family. It has that cult feeling, but it's not really like you could leave at any point, but. Right. I think for, for me in this particular situation, I think my parents, well, first of all, my parents didn't know that he was being physically abusive towards me. Um, So they, the only thing that they knew was that I was infatuated with him Mm -hmm. and they thought that that was unhealthy, but it wasn't something enough to try and tear me away from it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, you're a teenager and you have little infatuations and things like that. You don't think much about it. I, but I, I was like obsessed with him um, just because I felt like he was the gateway to God and like he was the only one that had that ability. But as it grew, I think that there was a lot of blind spots in that church, a lot of blind spots. And I really 
hated that, um, you know, being inside of it because it felt like when I was inside of it, it felt like I was screaming and like, I, I couldn't get out, you know, like I didn't like being hit. I didn't like being abused. Um, but I also didn't know that it was abuse until like college. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I moved away three hours for college and, um, I didn't, I just didn't know that what he was doing to me was wrong until all of a sudden I had people that were trying to treat me with respect. And then I realized like how upsetting, how upset that made my youth minister because then now people are in my ear other than him and Mm -hmm. that wasn't good, you know? Um, So I just didn't really understand how bad it was. I think that my separation from the church and leaving it um, is definitely opened my eyes as to how dedicated some of those members are. Mm -hmm. And that was really difficult to see that like there was a lot of people that didn't like him and tried to get him fired and X, Y, Z, but none of them really took the time to bat an eye about my part in it. And again, it just looked like an infatuation, although, you know, he was physically abusing me and humiliating me in front of some people like other youth ministers, and they didn't do anything about it because I would laugh after it was done because I thought being hit by a grown man was normal and it wasn't. (laughs) And so it's like a very, it was a very challenging um, atmosphere for sure. And a big reason why I felt like I had to go into the ministry afterwards. Does that change your perspective on trusting people after leaving the church? And oh, yeah. actually with having a man, a man in power, having almost full control over you and kind of manipulating you into how you're supposed to feel or how, what you're supposed to believe in. Yeah. So if you ask my, um, if you ask my husband, I'm a very trusting person. After all of what has happened to me, the fact that I still trust people is incredible. Okay. Um, so if you ask my husband, he'll be like, wow, she is rock solid and trusting people. Right. However, um, I think one of the other, it's hard to answer because it's like, I understand that there are good people out there that go to church. Mm -hmm. Okay. But in my personal experience, I told three pastors that I was being abused. I told the bishop. I told other lay members of the church. I told other youth ministers. And everyone just said, forgive him. And... I, it, I don't see myself walking inside of a church anytime soon. I really don't. Um, and that's because I've come to the conclusion on how to have my own personal relationship with God without that church <laughs> or any church in particular. Um, and I think people, especially in the South, they think that you can't have a relationship with God if you don't go to church. It's more of like a status quo thing than it is about your actual relationship with God. And so for me, I think that that was very different, but 
you know, my husband and growing up or not growing up with him, I, I met him when I was in another relationship and he kind of stole me away. So, you know, um, but he has seen a lot of my reactions of PTSD, a lot of them and how I completely dissociate and it's not fun for him. Um, but he has stuck by my side and he's shown me what it's, I'm supposed to be treated like and continually helps me with those like limiting beliefs and negative thought distortions that I have and, and helps me get through that. You talked about the path to get to where you are with your career. When you're helping people as a therapist, what's the big message or mission you're hoping to help them in their journey or their recovery that they're going through? So I work exclusively with women, um, usually young women that have PTSD, and that's that's my population. I, I love working with women. I love working with women helpers. And so um, I didn't recognize like how much I loved working with trauma until I started really diving into it. And it was something that I just I absolutely love. So when I'm working with clients, the main thing that I'm helping them understand is that we can't get over our trauma. Mm-hmm. And um, I use, have you ever seen Over the Hedge, that old, oldish cartoon with the little squirrel and the hedgehog and I, anyways, it has a little raccoon that steals <laughs> Pringles from a bear. It's, oh, it's, yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. Oh, I'm so glad. I, I didn't want to talk to it. Anyways, I can explain this to a T because I say it so many times. But there's this one scene in the movie and all the little forest creatures, they wake up and they get out of their log because hibernation is over. And then they're like, okay. And the little um, leader hedgehog person or whatever he is, he's like, it's time to gather nuts. We got to get ready for hibernation. And he's like control freak, like all the sorts of level. Right. And, you know, the squirrel has ADHD, which I just think is perfect. Man, I need to watch this movie again. But um, his squirrel. Anyways, um, but in this particular thing, when they wake up, they're just walking around, walking around. And all of a sudden, bam, they run into this giant hedge. Okay. And when they're, they're like, they look up and it's super tall and it goes really long one way and really long the other way. And then the, the squirrel, he's like, I'm going to see how far it goes. And he like runs. And then he's like, oh my God, it never ends. And he runs the other way. He's like, it's never ending. It's just one big thing. And they call it Steve. They call it the great and powerful Steve. Okay. Um, but they're, when they get to this hedge, this is how I explain trauma to my clients. I say, hedges are hollow, but they don't look it. Like if you really thought about it, like you could literally walk on top of this hedge and just get over it, right? Yeah. I mean, that seems perfectly normal if it's trimmed and everything. No. Okay. So trauma is like this hedge. If we try to walk on top of it and get over it, we will ultimately fall through and be stabbed with a million twigs and holly branches and it will hurt and it will feel just gross and disgusting and blah, blah. you know, we don't want any of that. Okay. And so um, I tell people, you know, you can't go around it because it's super long. Can't go under it because we don't got a shovel. Okay. And unless you want to break your fingers, you're not digging your way underneath the hedge. It's just not <laughs> happening. I'm not allowing that to be an option. Okay. Um, so the only way to get 
you know, to the other side of the hedge, to the subdivision, because that's what they figure out is on the other side, um, is to get through it. And although getting through a hedge is not the most desirable option in the whole entire world, because I don't know if you've ever been pushed into a hedge before, but it it hurts. Okay. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. Okay. Um, And so walking through this hedge, the difference between getting over something and getting through something is that you're able to see the obstacles that are in front of you long enough to create a plan to see how you can avoid it. Mm -hmm. Right. Versus if you just try to get over something, then you fall and you're like disoriented and you can't, you you know, you're just like, um, every time you try to get up, you stab yourself again with another twig. And then it's just, you got more scratches and bugs crawling all over you and the whole nine yards. And so I help women, especially women helpers move through their trauma in a way that's safe and allows them to have as much control as they can over what's in front of them. And that's what I love to do because I know what it's like to be in this cycle of literally all of my life up until the time where I discovered what mental health was. I was the person that got a ladder and kept trying to walk on the hedge and would fall through and come out on the side that, you know, the forest side, not the subdivision side, and just keep doing the same damn thing over and over and over again. And I'm like, there's got to be a better way to do this, you know? And I never would have thought that the better way to do it would be to actually walk through the trauma and see how... I am stronger than it and I have the ability to get to the other side versus letting it control me. So, um, and letting it determine how I get hurt by me falling through it. And so I I don't want to give my trauma any more power than it already had in my life. I kind of take that concept kind of similar to what a Phoenix goes through where Mm -hmm. they kind of rise through these ashes and basically if you are underneath the ash you basically have to get through it to get to the top and kind of get that fresh start or that new beginning or that next chapter and so to hearing you say that and I love the over the hedge what a movie that was um, back then but taking that same concept I can definitely see how you do that would you say the women that you work with It's helpful that you have gone through trauma yourself because there's a lot of people that are in like the fitness industry, the health industry, therapists that they haven't gone through it. And why are we someone going to connect with them if they don't know what that person is going through? Oh, yeah. I feel like now we're taught in school to not really use self-disclosure a lot because you don't want to make the therapy session about you. Yeah. But whenever I started working with these women, what I noticed is that they were craving someone who understood. Yep. And so I started using appropriate self-disclosure where I would use examples from my life and help them see that I was able to work through it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
like I said, me coming out and talking about the abuse that I went through with my youth minister, you know, I have several of my clients that follow me on um, my professional TikTok. And um, I like posted on there the other day, like, hey, I just did this thing. And I was like, I can't believe I'm about to say this sentence that I was abused by my youth minister because I never said it in a public platform before. And I'm thinking about the consequences and all this kind of stuff. And I had a client that was like, bro, you looked like you were full on like dissociative state over there, like doing that video. And, and I said, yeah. And they were like, I really appreciated you doing that because it showed me how authentic you are Mm -hmm. and how you, you still struggle and you work on being the person that you want to be, you know, um, every day. And, and I think that's what my clients see is like, I still struggle. I still have anxiety attacks and I still have depressive episodes and I still get in my head and my husband and I will get in fights and I'll have, you know, issues with my mom and my dad and my sister and all this kind of stuff, but I actively choose me. And instead of like choosing someone else, and that's something that I didn't do for a really long time because I was so infatuated with the, with the church and that culture. And, um, that culture was all about doing things for other people before you did things for yourself, which I think has a role in our society. But at the same time, it's like, you can't do things for other people unless you take care of yourself, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think that was something that I just never learned how to do because I was never given that option. When you're not working, sometimes our guests like to, our our listeners like to learn a little bit more about the guests. When you're not working, what do you like to do for fun? Oh my gosh, dude. I am like sitting on my couch. Like that's, literally, <laughs> that's, that's literally what I do. Like I, I sit on the couch and watch trash TV. I'm, I'm not even lying to you. Um, I mean, have you seen the new season of Love is Blind? Because like my husband judges me deeply <laughs> for watching it. Okay. Um, I we were literally getting ready to go to a funeral. Oh, <laughs> this, no. this shows you like how fucked up I am. Okay. But we were getting ready to go to a funeral. And I was like, we can't leave yet. I have to figure out if he chooses this girl. Like, I just have to see if he does. And he was like, babe, we've got to go. And I'm like, "Mm, okay. I'm like sitting there in the funeral the whole time. Like, oh my God, who did he choose? Who did he choose? And it's like, it's just bad. So um i have three cats and i'm you will find me sitting on my couch um i have like a recliner couch and i literally just like ball up into a like a little cocoon of blankets and pillows (laughs) in the very depths of the corner of my recliner couch and um i sit there and i watch tv and i scroll on my phone and i completely dissociate from everything that's <laughs> happening around me i don't listen to people at, at past a certain time because my brain can't handle it i just like i'm just like i can't do it anymore and um my husband if he wants my attention or if he wants to talk to me past a certain time he usually has to like grab my face and be like babe 
<laughs> and it's like uh sorry i my listening ears were turned off um and it, it's a very like familiar conversation where he's just like i can tell when you're just like right like you're not listening to me like sometimes <laughs> he'll like say something i'll be like right uh-huh and he's like did you hear anything that I just said and i'm like no <laughs> i couldn't hear it at all i'm so sorry um so yeah, it, you will find me on my couch, um, sitting in you know some old boxers and a ratty t-shirt, <laughs> cuddled up with my cats and um, watching like a rom-com or some trash TV because that's that's how I unwind at the end of the day. I mean, I'm the same way. Like, put on some good reality TV. It basically, what did I do all day? Like, I'm so focused. Yeah. And usually I have to call my mom and be like, hey, I have to tell you what just happened, but I'm going <laughs> to call you tomorrow. We're going to talk about what just happened on TV. I know. I'm I waiting know. till next week. I'm like, give me the sneak previews. Give me mm-hmm. like, the, here, watch the first seven minutes of next. Mm-hmm. Tell, Give me a good reunion show for these reality TVs. You know, that's one of the things that my husband and I disagree on. And it drives me up a wall, okay, (laughs) because he will not watch the sneak peeks for the next episode because he thinks it ruins the next episode. No, I say seven minutes that I don't need to watch and we're we're recording. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I'm like, no, like, like when we were watching The Last of Us on HBO, which is a fantastic show, by the way. It would have the like, here's what's going to happen next week. And he would be like, I don't want to know anything. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I just want to watch it. just a little clip. That's all I want. And so um, that's one of the things we disagree on is is the um, little preview, little thing, Majigger Bob for the next week. And it drives me up a wall. Um, but besides that, he's a great husband. Absolutely. <laughs> 100%. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I do that and I do that with my mother-in-law too. She likes trash TV as well. And so sometimes we'll just be sitting in the living room together, my mother-in-law and I, and we'll be watching some guy with, or some show with guys with shirts off that have like waxed chests and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and then like, you know, my father-in-law will walk in and my husband will walk in and they'll be like, um, you know, that's not realistic. Like men are never going to just actually wax their chests for the hell of it. And it's like in this life that I'm experiencing right now, men do wax their chests and they're perfectly okay with it. So, um, that's the reality that we choose to live in. So, you know, the final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? Yeah, so I think my biggest piece of advice would be to get perspective. And I'm not just saying that as a therapist. I'm saying that as a human as well, because my perspectives that I received Um, And, you know, you guys haven't heard the whole story of everything that has happened to me, obviously. Um, But the perspectives that I've received, you know, going away to college, um, you know, I moved away five hours from home to move in with my um, now husband, was my boyfriend back then when I moved in. And, um, 
which, you know, is a sin to move in with your boyfriend before marriage, but you know, sinner over here. And so, um, yeah, but I definitely think that perspective, whether you receive that from distance or you receive that from a trusted individual, like a therapist is super, super important. Um, we have so many people out there with opinions these days. So many people that are trying to sell you something, um, so many people that are like, oh, you need this in order to be healthy. I mean, hell's bells. Like, I want to start a diet and there's like 80 million experts out there for me, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm like, and they're all on my Facebook ads and all of them sound compelling, but none of them are probably real experts. Yep. And so like, get perspective from trusted professionals. Yes, you're going to have to pay more than $19.99 in order to get a real perspective from someone, unless you got good insurance, which kudos on you. Um, But it's about finding someone who truly cares and puts their work in Mm -hmm. to finding what works best for you as an individual instead of, you know, someone that just wants to sell something. And so, you know, I, I try and make mental health as accessible as possible and perspective as accessible as possible. I have online courses and I have little things that people can get little workshops and whatnot. And I, and I love doing those things, but I don't like those things are extras for me because I find myself saying those things over and over and over again. And I just want to be able to make it accessible to people versus, you know, other people that, you know, just trying to become the next millionaire like my dad was with that pyramid scheme. So, you know, try and make sure that you're finding someone that will work with you and finding your new perspective instead of the perspective that just fits their cookie cutter plan. Well, Becca, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we are excited to see what the future looks like for you. Yeah, for sure, Alex. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm glad that I could uh, share this stuff with you. Tune in next time. Hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel through the full-length episode and video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.